Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, thank you guys so much for joining today's episode of The Christian Skeptic. This is a very special episode and one I am super excited for and have been looking forward to for a little while now. I am going to be talking with the author of a book called Single Gay Christian. His name is Gregory Coles. And this was a book that I was actually handed about four or five years ago when I was still a pastor at a megachurch here in town. And this is a, uh, this is a book that's brutally honest, number one. Uh, number two, it's a book that will make you laugh and will make you cry. At least it did for me. Like there are parts of it that made me laugh and parts of it that, that made me tear up. And so, uh, really without further introduction, uh, Gregory Coles, welcome to the show. Can I call hey, you Greg? Thanks. Oh, please do call me Greg. <laughs> Gregory is fine, but it has a very papal quality to it and no offense <laughs> to the popes. I'm just not one of them. So yes, call me Greg. Um, what a delight to, to be with you. Yeah, it's, it's an honor to have you. And uh, without burying the lead, I want to just start off with my favorite passage from your book, which I hope it's okay if I just read you words that you wrote. Oh, <laughs> please I think do. It's, it's good for the listeners because, um, you know, like, like you said, I read your book about four or five years ago, and that was because I was working at a church and we were dealing with this issue and there was some debate. There was an incident that happened with some staff members that I, I won't get into but we found your book and it was so incredibly helpful because you're so honest, right? And I think first and foremost, that's probably the quality that I've admired the most about you is just how brutally, blatantly honest you are. And I love it. And so you have a chapter in your book, the chapter's title, What God Called Good. And it's this, for I don't know, for, for the reader, at least for me, it's kind of this climax moment in the book where you, you confront your pastor. And, and, and you tell him that you're gay. And the moment you do, is, it's just so beautiful, right? The conversation you have with him that you, you record in your book is uh, it's just my absolute favorite. And, and you write something towards the end of that chapter that uh, I was rereading it this morning in preparation for our interview, and it still gives me goosebumps, what you wrote. So I love it. So I'm just going to read it so our, our uh, listeners know what I'm talking about. But you write, my gay orientation was broken. Yes. But so was every orientation every human being, every facet of creation. The question wasn't whether I was broken, but whether I was willing to let my own unique brokenness tell a story of redemption. I was a bottle at sea with a message inside, carrying words of hope that unfurled as I shattered. My broken pieces were part of the story I was made to tell. Like, wow, man, that's powerful. So with that being said, I have to ask the question because the theme of the Christian Skeptic Podcast as we dive into a question every episode. What is it like being a single gay Christian? Tell us your story. Yeah, um, I would say at, at this moment in my life, being a single gay Christian is actually really fantastic. But, but that in some ways, it, it's true at this moment in time, but it maybe hasn't been true chronologically at every point along the journey. So I'll, I'll, I'll catch us up to some, some historic moments along the way, and, and maybe that'll, that'll give a sense of how I've gotten to my current place. I, my first awareness that I was attracted to the same sex uh, happened in puberty, and, and it was actually 
it, it was those moments in youth group when they would split the boys and the girls up into, into separate groups, which of course invariably meant that we were going to talk about sex. And I remember, <laughs> I remember at this stage of my life, all the girls were like freakishly tall and wore a lot of eyeshadow. And uh, so they'd take all the tall eyeshadow wearing girls and they'd send them off to one room and then they'd get the boys together and they'd be like, look, boys, here's what you're going through. You want to look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, got it. No looking at pictures of naked women. And I discovered that I was remarkably good at not looking at pictures of naked women. I was, I was like so good at it that I started to believe that I was like the holiest 12 year old in the world. Cause they were telling me like every young man is going through this, you know? And I was like, I'm not going through it. I think I've been spared because I just love Jesus so much. So <laughs> it, it took me a little while to realize uh, like, oh, I do in fact have an experience of sexuality. It's just not the one that I'm being sort of trained and embraced to expect. And that made me go very quickly from feeling like the holiest 12-year-old in the world to feeling like the worst possible 12-year-old in the world, the one who was so awful that nobody had even bothered to warn me that somebody like me might exist. So that launched for me some, some seasons of wrestling through different possibilities about what it looked like for somebody in my shoes to follow Jesus. Um, and there were kind of two, two predominating narratives that I knew of for people who were gay and wanted to be followers of Jesus. There was the ex-gay narrative and there was the gay affirming narrative. And the ex-gay narrative, which was the one that was more popular in, in my Christian spaces by far, was the narrative that said, well, if you turn out to be attracted to the same sex, you just need to figure out what has gone wrong in your life and try to fix it. And then you need to pray. And between those things, fixing what has gone wrong and lots and lots of prayer, God wants to God wants to make you straight, and then you too can have a spouse and two point four children and a white picket fence, and you know happily ever after. Sure, and, yeah. And the the stories the stories that the ex gay narrative had for what was supposed to have made me gay didn't quite seem to make sense in my life. For instance, a, a popular theory uh, about what made people gay was that it was because you had a distant father and an overbearing mother. And I took a look at my own parents and, and they're just delightful. Like my dad is not distant. My mother is not overbearing. You know, they said like, you got to process the traumas in your past. And I was like, not that I don't have any issues, but I've lived a relatively untraumatic life. And, and so in so many ways, uh, it, it just seemed like the, the story of what was supposed to have made me gay didn't really fit uh, the story of my life. I'm curious on that point, right? Because that's something that's very common. Uh, especially among Christians in the church who are gay and, and who come out is that we'll pray hard enough and it'll go away. How long did you wrestle with that? And I, I guess, did you start to doubt in wrestling with that? Did you doubt God? Did you doubt the church? Did you doubt the faith you'd grown up in? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, for me, the, the doubt began once it became very clear to me that making me straight was not high on God's priority list. Uh, so <laughs> So, so, you know, so, so I'm initially aware that I'm gay, uh, early middle school, maybe. Uh, and so through middle school and high school and college, my expectation is eventually, as I grow in my faith, as I, you know, become more like Jesus, I will become straighter. Uh, and this led me to do some somewhat foolish things along the way, for instance, and this, for those of you listening, is not a recommendation. This is not like a how-to, but cut me a break because I was like 13 or 14 at the time. There was a time I ran across a picture of a scantily clad woman somewhere. I think it was like a bathing suit ad or something. And I thought to myself, you know, I've, I've been told that if I love Jesus more, I would be straighter. And I've also been told that if I were straight, 
I would like feel things about a picture like this. So I took the picture and I was like, I'm going for it. And I'm just like staring at this picture, trying to conjure up a sense of lust toward this picture, which was ineffective. I mean, for all the good it did, I might as well have been staring at an office supplies poster. <laughs> but but it, but it, it was it was so deeply embedded in my psyche, this notion that to grow in my faith, to have evidence of the work of God in my life would be to become more attracted to women, to become less attracted to men. And so when I when I reached a point where through a, a handful of experiences, it became remarkably clear to me that that was not the thing that God was doing in my life, that really launched a crisis point for me because I, I started to wonder if if I've been told by the Christian community that I'm part of that this is what Jesus is supposed to mean for my life as someone who's attracted to the same sex. And that doesn't seem to be true. If, if the Christians who told me that were wrong about that, what else were they wrong about? Were they, were they wrong about what they said about sexual ethics? Were they wrong that for followers of Jesus, marriage is intended to be between male and female? Were they wrong about the fact that God exists at all? And so I really, I really started to wrestle deeply uh, with all of these questions, kind of working my way down from, do I even believe that God exists anymore? And from there to, what do I think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? How do I understand Jesus? And then from there to, how do I discern through scripture what it is that Jesus seems to call his followers to when it comes to stewarding our sexuality and our sexual attraction? And, and, and I, I, love, I love that you're phrasing it this way, because those questions are often terrifying. Uh, for people in the church, and especially for people that don't understand your struggle or don't understand struggle really with, I mean, uh, see, and I, I want to be careful how I phrase this because everyone struggles with sin, right? And, and even that passage I read from your book, you you acknowledge everyone's broken in, in some unique way, right? But often we think someone else's brokenness is more damaging, right? When it's really we all have to face these questions. And, you know, I, I didn't grow up in youth group in the church. I kind of came to it a little bit later, but that's something I noticed watching those that did grow up in the youth group is it's like, man, if, if you don't at some point wrestle with these questions, is there a God? Is his word true? How do I live out his word for my life? It's almost like your faith is going to be weaker moving forward, right? So in, in some degree, you know, if, if, especially if someone's listening and can relate to this, it's almost like you want to encourage, like, yeah, lean into these questions, you know, uh, start asking these, start digging, start, start reading <laughs> different people's opinions, start talking to different people, different opinions, you know? Uh, so tell me about uh, your, your journey through that. Cause I'm sure, and, and you mentioned it earlier that there's kind of the other swing, uh, the, the, not just pray, pray yourself attracted to women <laughs> shift, but then there's the other shift of well, no, God does accept this now because there's, you know, outdated language in the Bible and well, Paul didn't really mean this. And, and, and you, you wrestled with that a lot too, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, and, and I really am grateful for that wrestling, uh, just kind of concurring with, with what you just said. Um, there's a sense in which until we have wrestled deeply with the big questions of our faith, uh, there's always a kind of fragility in our faith, as if we're afraid that really coming to face to face with the world as it is will threaten the things that we hold to be true, as if God might not actually be strong <laughs> enough, Jesus might not actually be robust enough to withstand kind of the the onslaught of of reality. And so, oh man, we could have a whole nother episode on that conversation right there. <laughs> but I think I think 
uh, in the context of this conversation around sexuality, it was really valuable for me to say, uh, I don't need to be afraid of reading people who reach different conclusions on this question. I, I can, if, if I'm genuinely motivated by the desire to go where scripture leads me and, 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 and to, to be willing to be proven wrong by the Bible, but also to be willing to let the Bible tell me things that I don't want to hear from it. I think having that, having that posture is, is so, so valuable to being able to wrestle with scripture in a way that's actually authentic, in a way that leads us to something that is robust and stable enough to hold on to. So when I did that wrestling, uh, I would say there were, there were three major things that I, that I discovered as I was sort of wrestling through scripture in, in the context of questions around same-sex sexuality. Uh, the first was uh, that there was no biblical promise that I would be straight which was a shock mm. to me. I was so ready for it to be in there somewhere. I was <laughs> sure that the Bible said like, then shalt thou experience the sexual desire only for the opposite sex and never the same sex somewhere in the book of second hesitations. Like I could have sworn <laughs> that it was in there, but it, it just wasn't, you know, there, there was no biblical promise that I would be straight. There was no biblical promise that I would get married. There wasn't even shockingly a biblical promise that I would ever have sex. Mm. So that, that was the first thing that I, that I encountered when I started to dig deeply. The, the second was this. I found that when it came to this, this question of sexual ethics, specifically the question of what somebody in my position, somebody exclusively attracted to the same sex, was called to do in stewardship of their sexuality as a follower of Jesus, I found that that question was more complicated than I had been led to believe in my upbringing. Uh, that it was more complicated than a lot of the well-meaning people in my life made it seem when they said, look, you just flip open your Bible in the English translation, you find the <laughs> word homosexual in there, it's bad, you know, case closed, moving on to something more pressing like the Calvinist-Arminian debate. I, I found that, that that conversation was actually really complicated and that the, the people who made it seem simple uh, really hadn't done me any favors because once hmm. I discovered it was complicated, I was all the more suspicious of the fact that no one had admitted to me previously just how complicated it was. And yet, despite that complexity, um, and, and we, can, we can dig into the particulars of, of why I found it complex. Yeah, but, absolutely. But despite that complexity, <clears throat> I, I did, the, the third thing I, I discovered was that it seemed that despite the complexity, there still seemed to be a best answer to the question, that there still seemed to be a best way of reading the text. And so even though I was very much viscerally and even intellectually sympathetic to some of the arguments that lead people to a view that affirms same-sex marriage, those, those didn't seem to me to be the, the best readings of scripture. And so I concluded that I was called to, called to be celibate. I could, of course, theologically, I still believe there's plenty of room for me to pursue an opposite-sex marriage. I just don't have any personal interest in that uh, sexuality wise. And I'm so deeply convinced that the Bible thinks that singleness is like a really, really great thing. Um, that if I don't particularly desire to marry a woman, I don't necessarily see why there's huge value in me being like, but I'm going to make it work anyway. I really need the 2.3 children I was promised by the American dream. So for that reason, singleness. Um, but yes, th those are the, those are the things that I found in, in kind of my, my textual study. But if you want to dig into the particulars by all means, yeah, I, I say, let's do it. Let's dig into the particulars. You did mention a few big things. 
that I do want to get to. You being called to celibacy is definitely something I want to talk about. I think that's something a lot of people are going to be curious about. But yeah, let's just start by getting into the complexities. And uh, so you said that the issue is so much more brushed over in everything that you've been finding, but that as you started digging into the scripture, you found it to be more and more complex. And so I really, I have, I have two questions out of that. And the first one is probably more from a stance of empathy or maybe someone you know, who would object with an empathetic objection of why in the world do you think this 2000 year old book should dictate your life regarding how you feel when your feelings of attraction are so strong? You know, why, why should you deny yourself that for whatever's in this 2000 year old book? And then number two, what are the complexities you discovered? Yeah, great. In, in terms of the first question, what is it? What is it with this 2000 year old book? Why should I care <laughs> what it says? Uh, for me, this all comes downstream from the question of who is Jesus and mm. how do we how do we understand the authority of Jesus in our lives? So the, 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 thing that, the thing that most compels me about the person of Jesus, the reason I'm still a, still a Christian, is that the, the historical evidence that there was this guy who showed up and claimed to be the savior of the world, and at the very least, you know, whatever else you do or don't believe about the historical evidence, like there was a big hubbub around him, everybody agrees, pretty much everybody agrees that he died, and then that some people claimed he was resurrected, and that the people who claimed that were so convinced of his resurrection that they then went on to allow themselves to be killed for the for the purpose of this faith. And so, with respect to Jesus himself, you know, I find the the Lewisian, you know, the the construction that Josh McDowell later calls like liar, lunatic, or Lord. I find that kind of argument around like who is Jesus himself. I find that really compelling. And then just with respect to like. If there are all these people claiming that they saw the resurrected Jesus, was it a mass hallucination? Were they all lying? Or if they were all lying, why were they all so convinced of the, the willingness to go along with this lie that they went on to live very inconvenient lives and be killed for it? Uh, and so it seems to me that the best way of explaining just the historical evidence that we have is that like, Jesus really was who he says he was, and he really, he really did rise from the dead. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, and, and that's, that's a tough struggle too, right? Because it's like, you realize that there's some kind of truth to this. And even if you come to terms with this being, I, I want to say objectively true, but objective truth is so hard to discern in the abstractions and the, and the subjections in which we live. But nevertheless, there's evidence that points towards this being true. And if, if you're going to accept that evidence, that's, that's a big commitment, right? Because then you have to accept the evidence that, well, gosh, if this really is true, or if all the evidence is pointing towards this being true, then there's got to be some validity to what the guy is saying. But, but even then, right? Even then you can accept something as true. You can accept, okay, Jesus was a real person. And you know what? He may even be God, right? I have a couple of friends like this, like, yeah, no, the Bible makes complete logical sense, but it prevents me from living the life I want to live. So mm. fooey with it, right? What makes you say that? Like, 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 what, or sorry, what makes you not say that? What makes you look at the Bible and say, okay, this is true. This is objectively true, but still why care? Because at first glance, right. I'm, I'm, and I might just be projecting some, some empathy on you here, but at first glance, right. I, I can see 
and, and this might not just be you, this is just a lot of people with your same struggle in those formative teenage years saying, okay, I know this is true. I know this is true, but the struggle is going to be real. The pain, the loneliness, the despair I'm going to feel. And, and, and you, you do talk about it in your book a little bit. So I do recommend that to anyone listening as well. But, uh, you know, at first glance, you're like, oh, all of this, this road I'm going to walk is so hard. Is it more than I can bear? What makes you say I'm going to walk it anyway? There, uh, there's a line from, from C.S. Lewis. Uh, again, apparently Lewis is just on my brain today. Uh, th- <laughs> there's, a, there's a line where Lewis is talking about claims of Christ's importance. And he says, uh, Christianity, if true, is of the utmost importance. And if false, of no importance at all. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. Um, and, 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 and that, that to me is, a, is a really compelling way of thinking about the question of, should I, should I care what, what Jesus has to say about my life? I would say if, if we, if we don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we absolutely should not care in the slightest. We shouldn't be like, oh, he was a nice moral teacher. Just like, I don't know. He was a guy, he died. It doesn't matter. But if, if the claims that he makes about himself are true, then the claims he makes about the world are also therefore true. And one of the, well, some of the, some of the things that Jesus says about what it, what it means to, to live a life that is meaningful and has value um, and has hope and joy is that that life is counterintuitively found in ways that we would not expect to find it. And so, for instance, when Jesus says, you know, and anyone who wants to wants to save their life is going to lose it. Um, but the, but the one who loses their life for my mm. sake will find it again. If if Jesus actually said that and he actually is who he claims to be, then then I believe that that's actually a truth worth ordering my life around that maybe the way to be the the way to have the kind of life that I long to have both in this present lifetime and in the life to come, the way to find that life is actually not going to be by me making a, making a logical assessment of my world and saying, what seems most likely to bring me joy? What seems most likely to bring me happiness? But it's instead asking, is there a way that in following Jesus, it can look as if I am losing my life, right? When Jesus says, you know, if anybody wants to come after me, let them take up their cross and follow me. Um, again, it's this it's this counterintuitive call to say, if you want life defined in the way that Jesus defines it, then the way to get there is through the thing that looks like death, and even through the thing that feels like death. Um, and so I would say, absolutely, like there are things about my life that may look from the outside like death and may even feel on the inside like death at times. And yet there is also this remarkable return on that investment that there's a, there's a kind of hope and beauty and joy and meaning um, that I think is is so far beyond anything that I could conjure up for myself if I had decided to try to live my life in a way that seems maximally worthwhile to me well that's that's fair enough and you know in retrospect from the outside looking in you almost have a special blessing and that you have to confront that right away at christianity right because it's it's a common i, I guess phraseology in our culture uh especially among maybe the more secular or even just the more like kind of generally spiritual 
people, and especially among those who who leave the church, right, is that Christianity is okay as long as it's a religion that you know fulfills you or gives you some kind of comfort, right? And the reality is, like you just pointed out, Jesus's words are very, very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> he said, "He said, blessed are the persecuted. <laughs> like, blessed are you when when men uh, speak all manner of evil against you, right? Like, there's nothing comforting about that at all, and." You know, it's not like if you're heterosexual, you have a comfortable life if you're a Christian, right? Like it should, should be very uncomfortable. And yet so many Christians pursue lives of comfort, right? So, so many Christians live lives of comfort, just going to church, pursuing whatever the world has to offer and never actually confront the reality that the, the fundamental aspects of your being have to be confronted in perhaps the most uncomfortable way, right? Because you have to accept this life that may very well come with persecution. And if it does, well, you're blessed, <laughs> you know? So yeah. Okay. Onto the complexities though. You mentioned that there were some complexities on this issue. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, to, to, to give you some, some classic examples, we could say, uh, we could say that, that when the Bible speaks specifically about same sex sexual activity of any kind, uh, it, it, that, that really only happens in a handful of texts in scripture and there are interesting questions to be raised about all of those moments. So in Leviticus 18 and 20, we see a uh, man should not lie with a man as one does with a woman. Uh, that is an abomination. The Hebrew word there is toeva. The interesting thing about the word toeva as, as a word meaning abomination uh, is that it's, it's not some of the things that that word is used to describe in the Old Testament law are things like dietary laws, um, which in the New Testament get declared, you know, there's there's a moment where a sheet is lowered down from heaven and God tells Peter like, hey, like take it. In other <laughs> words, like you should break the very laws that I gave you in the book of Leviticus. You know, things that I said were mm-hmm. toeva back then, like suddenly not only are they, I guess if you have to, but they're actually like things that, that the Lord says to Peter, like do it. Um, uh, it's now, not a course, Cindy Bacon anymore. <laughs> uh, and bless the Lord for that. Uh, Amen. So, 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 so when it comes to when it comes to laws in Leviticus, it's appropriate for us to ask: To what degree are these things still relevant to us today? Mm. Um, uh, some people uh, will will name the the uh, the story of Sodom uh, in Genesis eighteen and nineteen. Um, that I think is an especially. Uh, an especially dangerous verse to be like, this so clearly proves our argument about special uh, sexual ethics, because in the story of Sodom, uh, we have some people who are actually angels. They're not even human men. Uh, and, and the circumstance being discussed is a situation of gang rape. Um, and uh, I've often said to people like, of all the things I have ever been sexually tempted to do as a same-sex oriented person, like gang raping angels is very low on my priority list. Um, and, and so again, I, the question of what, what, we, what we derive from that story with respect to uh, the question of whether there's a possibility of a loving monogamous same-sex relationship um, is I think a, a, bit, a bit hairy. Um, when, when we get to the New Testament, there's Romans chapter one, which is probably the, the clearest passage but then the other two passages, uh, we've got a passage in 1 Corinthians 6 and in uh, 1 Timothy 1. And both of those passages use uh, the Greek word arsenakoitai. 1 Corinthians 6 also uses the word malakoi, which means soft. And, and there's some discussion about malakoi, uh, what kind of softness is being discussed here. 
Uh, is it is it moral softness? Is it the person who is the passive partner in a same-sex relationship? Is it, as some translations have rendered it, just effeminate? And if so, like who defines what effeminacy even is? Anyway, so Malakoi gives us some textual problems. Arsenakoitai gives us even more textual problems um, because this, this Greek word is a compound word and it's formed from two other words. It's formed from the words arsene, uh, which means male, and koiti, which means bed. So you could say like, oh, man bed, you know, like a man bed or like, it's clearly like a, a, a male homosexual. You could say that, but here's sure. the thing, that word arsenakoitai, Paul's uses of the word are the first recorded uses of that word anywhere in the whole Greek corpus that we have access to. So nobody else has used the word prior to Paul's use of it. And all the subsequent uses that, that we find it in seem to do a similar thing Paul does with it, which is just put it into a list of vices. Uh, and, and most of them seem to be references directly back to Paul. And so if all you do is see a word out of context in a list of vices, how much do you know about what that word necessarily means? And you could say, like, even if it seems obvious, I would just say, like, we should be cautious when we look at compound words in assuming that we know what the compound words mean. Uh, the example that I give in Single Gay Christian, my book, is that, uh, you know, in English, we have the word butterfly. And you could say, like, oh, butterfly, you've got butter, you've got fly. So <laughs> butterfly must be like a winged dairy product, you know? So, so we need to be we need to be cautious in how how affirmatively we assume we know what compound words mean when we don't have the literary context to be able to uh, define them. Sure, and there are all these complexities. So why not just take this and say, well, just like you said, the sheet was lowered in Acts uh, eleven. I think I don't know. I'm a bad former pastor. I don't remember the. <laughs> <laughs> the the reference offhand of every <laughs> biblical story. Eleven uh, sounds is, right because I think it's ten is when he gets the. Oh no, mm, I think ten might be when he gets the vision, and eleven is when he goes to Cornelius's house. But I, unlike you, have never even been like a pastor, pastor to begin with. So who knows? We'll Google it later. <laughs> it's ten or eleven. Yes, <laughs> I, I will get an email of someone correcting me on this. It'll be great. Um, <laughs> it'll be humbling, which is always a good thing, <laughs> but, but as you said, it, it's, it's in acts, right? Where the sheet is lowered and all of these laws are, uh, seen, I want to be careful here because they're not necessarily done away with, but there's a fulfillment that happened in Christ. And then the laws are transformed, right? And, and obviously the sheet being lowered is Gentiles being welcomed into the Holy of Holies, which is now the Holy spirit indwelling people is the symbolism there, right? But, but why not just take that? Why not just take that as your, I want to use the word license, but I feel like there's a better word, <laughs> but, but you're a license to just do away with homosexuality being an abomination in Leviticus and just say, well, you know, these words, and because this is a common thing, right? But well, you know, these words don't actually mean what we take them to mean today. Therefore, it's not a sin. So wh why not just take it and, and run with it? Yeah, I think on a on a postural level, I would say this, that I think there exists a, a way of reading the text, and it even makes sense to me, a way of reading the text that could lead us to conclude same-sex marriage could be an option for followers of Jesus. But my my vision as a as a as a reader, as somebody understanding text, and also as somebody who wants to follow Jesus, is that I don't just want to be looking for 
a way that I can discern, but, but I, I really want to be headlong desiring to know what is the best possible way of understanding what Jesus is calling me to. So even if there's license to say, ah, it's confusing, I'll just pick the answer I prefer. That to me does not feel like an intellectually honest way of approaching the question. I would, I would rather say, can I, can I do my utmost to find what seems to be the best possible way of answering the question, even if there are multiple ways of reading, what is the best possible reading, and then make my make my decisions accordingly from that. As to as to why why I would I would say that the uh, the the historic Christian understanding of marriage as between male and female makes makes more sense. There there are a couple of things I would speak to. One is that. In the original Genesis articulation of marriage, we see highlighted this distinction, male and female. Uh, And then when Jesus talks about marriage in the New Testament, he, uh, in defining marriage in Matthew chapter 19, he gestures back to uh, this this male and female creation. Jesus says, you know, haven't you read, he says to the, the Pharisees, I believe, who are asking him about divorce, haven't you read that in the beginning, uh, the creator created them male and female. And so in that articulation and, and woven throughout the narrative, there seems to be this, this definitional understanding of marriage as existing between male and female. In addition to that, I would say uh, with respect to the, well, with respect to the sheet being lowered from heaven, it, mm-hmm. it's notable, first of all, that yes, a sheet was lowered with foods. There was never a sheet that came down from heaven with like a naked man where God was like, hey, Peter, <laughs> go for it. You know, um, so, so I want to be careful that we're not making a kind of apples and orangutans comparison. And I would also say, I mean, that that sheet narrative is part of a bigger discussion in Acts, as, as you're saying, uh, and a discussion that extends through a lot of the New Testament about what does it look like for Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit? What does it mean for this this Jewish faith to become a faith that it, that is more than just a Jewish faith? And as the as the leaders in Acts are are making those decisions, the, you know they sort of get the get the council in Jerusalem together, and they say, okay, we're going to we we recognize that the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit, and so we're just going to give them a few instructions. And so they give them like four instructions things they should abstain from, abstain from eating meat, sacrifice to idols, abstain from blood. And one of the things on that very short list is abstain from sexual immorality. Mm. So there, there seems to be uh, a, a reaffirmation of, hey, the, the, the sexual ethics um, that have existed have been understood uh, in the Jewish faith. The, the, the word in Greek is porneia, uh, which is where we get our English word pornography from. There seems to be this reaffirmation, hey, porneia is still something that followers of Jesus are called to abstain from. Uh, and as I believe it's uh, the biblical scholar Scott McKnight who says, if you double click on the word porneia in, in the Greek New Testament, it takes you back to Leviticus chapter 18, which is a chapter that has this whole list of sexual prohibitions. And it, it's not just the council in Jerusalem that's prohibiting porneia, um, but it's also Jesus. Jesus also, uh, though he doesn't specifically name same-sex sexual activity, he does generally name porneia as something that his followers are called to say no to. And again, the understanding of porneia at that time includes a whole host of things, right? This is this is not right, like a, yeah. a zeroing in. This includes, uh, Jesus is including things like remarriage after, after the, the uh, vast majority of divorces that happen in the West. He also uh, 
you know, names those things as moiheia is the Greek word, uh, which means adultery. So Jesus ain't playing when it comes to sexual ethics generally. <laughs> I, I think taking Jesus really seriously about what he says about sexual ethics should challenge and inconvenience an awful lot of us, including but certainly not limited to those of us who find ourselves uh, gay or otherwise attracted to the same sex. So, and I'll, I'll make one last textual note, though, hopefully, yeah, hopefully this nerdiness is not overwhelming <laughs> our, our listeners here. Um, but one last interesting note about the Greek word arsenokoitai. As I said, there's no previous textual evidence of that word. However, it's interesting to note that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is being used and read in the time of Jesus or so, uh, the Septuagint translation of Leviticus chapter 18, uh, which gives this prohibition of same-sex sexual activity, it uses the words arsene, male, and koiti, bed, in that, in that chapter, even though Greek also has other words for maleness, it also has other words for sexual activity. And so hmm. even though we have to speculate about what exactly Paul means by this word arsenokoitai, a really likely speculation is that he's drawing from the language of the Septuagint, and creating a new compound word that gestures back to this initial prohibition of same-sex sexual activity. Again, it's, it's not a slam dunk, but when we're asking what is the most likely reading of this text, um, that seems to me to be a reasonably compelling argument. Uh, I wouldn't build a whole theology just on that textual point, but I do, think, I do think it points us in the direction of saying this is probably a better way of reading the text. No, yeah, that's a very valid point, and actually one that I have never heard before. Um, ah. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's very fascinating because it does put the importance of context into the narrative of the New Testament, and specifically then with the instructions, as you mentioned, that are then given to this new church, which has both Jews and Gentiles in it. Uh, this is probably where we will conclude part one of this interview. <laughs> and by that, I mean it is definitely where we will conclude part one of this interview. I realize this episode is longer than most, so thank you so much for tuning into the whole thing, if you have. But I left it like this on purpose because I feel like this whole conversation I've been having with Greg is so valuable, and I didn't want to edit anything out of it. I wanted you guys to just get the entire thing in its fullness, and honestly, I think we just lost track of time when we were talking, uh, but that's just how delightful of a person Greg is. So make sure you tune in to the next episode, which will be part two of this conversation, and we will discuss why celibacy was right in Greg's situation and why it might be right in other situations. But as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.